Faith is an extremely misunderstood subject in our world today. People have this erroneous idea that faith is believing in something that is unlikely, outlandish, and frankly, it's just a fairy tale. So when people think of faith, they really don't understand what the word faith really means biblically. And I'm sad that the church today has really kind of made that worse in, in a scientific age, uh, and now even moving different than that. But, but, but in this world of mysticism and experientialism that's kind of entered our churches, uh, people still really don't understand what faith is. And if we look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 3, if you have your Bibles with you. But we're going to look at Hebrews 11.1 1, 1 real quick. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Note that the, the author of Hebrews gives a couple of big words here, assurance and conviction. And there is substance to faith. It's not just a blind faith. Faith just doesn't see everything. Faith has ground. There, there's roots to faith. It's based on truth, but faith just doesn't see everything. Our faith is based on a real man, a man named Jesus Christ who lived on earth some 2,000 years ago. Our faith is based on a man whom there is much evidence that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was 100% God, 100% man, that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he was crucified on the cross, that he rose three days later and is now at the right hand of the Father. Our faith is based on a God who chose a people group, Israel, and who gave us much of their history in written form. Our, our faith is in a God who gave us a book that is inerrant, that is written by over 40 authors, but yet is consistent and flawless. Today we're going to see the faith of a new church, uh, the church of Thessalonica, as we've been talking about for, for, the, for quite some time, for a few weeks now. And, and we're going to see how the Holy Spirit's working in them and how the Holy Spirit can work in us to increase our faith as well and help us persist. So let's go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. It'll also be up here as well. But now that Timothy has come from us, or to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you. Uh, through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we're able to go through it. Lord, that we're able to have it and hold it in our hands, that we're able to take it with us wherever we go. And in this digital age, you can have it on your phone, you can have it at all times, access to the word of God. In so many countries, they don't have that ability. They're persecuted if they're they, if they're found out. Lord, I was just reading uh, something in the Voice of the Martyrs about a, a company in China that was making audio Bibles and distributing them to people that, that, that wanted them, especially people that were shut-ins that couldn't make it into their, their visits, and this person was cast into prison for doing that, Lord. But yeah, we live in a world where we can read freely, that we can have it freely, and God, sometimes we don't do it enough. Lord, so may you convict us on that and just, just renew in us a love for you, a love for your word as we go through it today. 
I thank you for the privilege to be able to stand up here and preach it. May it change me first before it goes out to others. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so today we're going to talk about two ways that Christ strengthens the faith of believers. The first is Christ strengthens your faith through persistent interaction, through persistent interaction. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 6 again, and then we'll keep moving. So 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, But now that Timothy has come from us to you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So last week, if you remember, Timothy is sent out by Paul, and Paul is struggling a little bit with this. You know, so, so Timothy is Paul's spiritually adopted son. He loves this young man, and now he is sending him away, and we know they just got thrown out. If we look, remember Acts 17, they got thrown out of Thessalonica, and then they got chased to Berea, got thrown out there, uh, then they went to Athens, now they're in Corinth, and so Paul's now sending Timothy back, hoping that it's been long enough. Maybe they forgot who Timothy was, you know, that kind of thing. And so, so he sends him, him back, knowing the dangers that he could face. But praise God, he returns, and, and, and Paul is overjoyed with this. And not only overjoyed with Timothy coming back, but, but Timothy brings news of this church that he was hoping for, and this news is good news. Paul chooses the word evangelizo, which is where we get the word evangelize. And this is a very strange use of this word. Uh, so this word is exclusively other than right here is used to talk about the gospel or something in pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good news. Like this is the great news of the gospel. But Paul uses this word just to kind of supercharge it, to let him know, hey man, this is, or let us know, this is huge news. This is huge news because, you know what, Th- this church, they weren't able to be there very long, as we talked about. They were there for weeks, and then they were, then th- then they were run out of town. And so this was great news to Paul because they had persisted in the faith despite that short time. And I love that uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary expound that the faith here, we see the word faith and love. And so faith was the solid foundation. Their faith was rooted in Christ. And I love how, how, how that they, they kind of... Uh, illustrate this. So, so faith is the foundation. It concrete. You pour a concrete foundation. Then you put blocks on top of it. So those blocks become that foundation on top of that. But then love is the cement that kind of covers it and keeps it strong. And that, that's how our churches need to be as well. Faith in Jesus Christ and love that is the cement that kind of holds us on. That short time that they had spent there was not in vain. This church had persisted I can only imagine how, how excited Paul was to hear this news. Uh, you can see in verse 5, if you go back, he was really anxious about what was going to happen here, uh, thinking, oh, man, maybe what we did was in vain. We were only there for a few weeks. We weren't really able to establish elders and set up the church the way, the way we wanted to. And he knew that that Holy Spirit, that Word of God, that seed that we plant um, even today, that we share the gospel with others, we plant that seed that it can be snatched up by the enemy. Yeah, there may be a, oh, yeah, that's great, and then you walk away, and it doesn't take root. It, it doesn't have any substance. It's not a true saving faith. It was received with gladness, but the enemy steals it away, just like the birds of the air take the seed off of the rocky soil or the rocky ways. So he didn't know. But after they left, was this a true church? Did we really make a difference? But now he's saying yes. You know, he, he knew that although a one-time decision is necessary, we, we, we should have that. Hey, we're, we're in. He knew that it took perseverance, that, that the true believers were known to be, to be perseverant in the faith. Paul wouldn't be fooled by a one-time decision. He'd been burned before, and we'll, we see he's burned again later. But now he's getting confirmation that there's true salvation that, that's hit at this church. And this is why we must make the best time uh, of our lives as well. We make the, the best use of our time. 
And, and the reason we take, make, need to make the best use is Paul and his companions, uh, look, Silas and Timothy that, that went, they didn't have a long time. This was a very short period. You look, a lot of times when they planted a church, they were there for, for a year, some, at least a year or more, sometimes multiple years. And, but yet they only had a few weeks here, and yet God did great things in this church. And we need to take Paul's example. Paul was super intentional. Uh, he, he was driven to make the most of every opportunity. We read in Ephesians five fifteen through 16, Paul write this to the church of Ephesus. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We should be teachable from Paul when he says this. Friends, disciple your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your other children that are in your church, other children that are around you and your family, extended family, other adults even. Make the most of every opportunity. We don't know when we're going to be taken home. We don't know when we're going to be moved away and there's going to be a distance there that we can't make the difference. We need to make the most of every opportunity. Some of us have been given a voice in the lives of others. And if you've been given a voice in someone's life to disciple them or teach them and they accept that from you, make the best of your use of that, of that time with them. And don't waste your time in places where you don't have a voice to where the pearls before swine. Use that time wisely. Find people that are teachable, that, that are wanting to learn and invest in those people and you'll have a better return. You look at Jesus. Jesus didn't force the gospel on people. He preached the gospel. He sowed the seed, and people came to him. And those that were willing to be taught, he taught. And usually what he would do is if a lot of people started coming and he realized there were some false believers there, they really weren't there for, for the right reason, he would say something outlandish like, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you'll have no part in the kingdom of God. So he said something spiritually discerned to where other people that were very literal and weren't really in, in it, that weren't revealed by the Holy Spirit, they ran off and were like, he didn't go chase them down and say, okay. Now, you know, he, he spoke in the lives of people that, that God the Father was drawing to him. God draws us to him. None of us seek God. N none of us, right? Romans 3, it says no one is good, not even one. None of us seek God, but God seeks us. And so when we need to respond to that drawing. Moving forward to verses 7 through 9, we see this. Let's go ahead and read 7 and 8 first. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul had his anxieties and concerns completely removed when he heard of the faithfulness of this new church plant. All the distresses, all the afflictions, all, all the persecution that they had experienced, they looked at it as worth it for, for seeing the gospel going, going forward. Have you ever been concerned about someone? Maybe you didn't see him for a while. Maybe it's even a child of yours. Maybe it was a nephew. Maybe it was a grandchild. Maybe it was somebody in your church that you didn't see for a while, and you were so concerned. You're like, I, I don't know. You know, how are they doing? And then they come back, and you see them on fire for the Lord. I mean, there is nothing greater than that feeling to see God working even when you're not there. Uh, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I'm sure any of you have had children that have grown out of your home, and and they're they're, they're cast out, they're shot out as we going through a parenting class right now, shooting them out into the world like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Right? They're, they're shot out and they hit the target, and, and they continue to walk with the Lord. Now, I'm sure some of us have not had that. Uh, we've had the opposite happen, and, and that is very difficult, and we, we just got to lift up prayers uh, for those people. But what a comfort it is when we do see someone walking in faithfulness. In verse 8, actually, Paul goes and says this extreme statement, like, for now we can live. He's saying now we can fully live. We can live abundantly because we have seen that you are standing fast in the Lord. You got to know, Paul, Paul didn't always receive good news. 
from the churches that he planted. Uh, actually, where he's at right now, he's planting a church in Corinth as he writes this letter to the church of Thessalonica. And if you look, this is the church that probably he writes the harshest words to in Scripture. And, and we see that at, at one point he was on the verge of depression because of where this church was. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, he says, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And he even loses interest in sharing the gospel at all because of his depression and how bad the news that he hears from the same church in that same book, but chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, But when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So we see that we are made to be a community of believers and that we have effect on one another. As we walk our spiritual walk, others walk their spiritual work, walk, they do affect us. And we see Paul, even as strong as he is in his weakness here, like he has an opportunity to share the gospel and, and he, he can't even do it. He's so, he's so depressed, he's so downcast that he can't even do it at the time. Now God picks him up just like he'll pick us up and he'll help us to continue walking. And we have to always realize, just like Paul did, that we can't rely on man. Uh, men and women will let us down. They, they, they will sin against us. Things will happen. I will probably sin against you. I'm going to do my best not to. But obviously, you, you'll sin against me. We'll all sin against each other. It's part of life because we are, self, we are selfish human beings. But we have to be professional forgivers, for one. And number two, we have to be professional reliers on Jesus Christ. He has to be our all in all. He has to be our everything. If we're relying on other people for our spiritual walk completely and it's solely on those other people, yeah, it's great to have shepherds, teachers, people that are teaching the word of God. Good to have, or great to have mentors, people that you can go to. We talk about that as a church a lot. Having people that you can go to to mentor, friends, people that you're mentoring. We need to be doing community together. But we have to realize, just like Paul, that we have to work in his strength. And we must remember that we are working with Christ and not just for Christ. And that helps us a lot because then sometimes we're doing things for Christ and we're, we're always, you know, always working for him. We miss the fact that we are working with him. He will restore our hearts when they are broken by the sinful acts of others. And he will strengthen us to do the works that he's prepared for us to do as we see in Ephesians 2.10. But praise be to God, this isn't the case of the church. of Thessalonica is different than Corinth. Uh, he's getting good news here and, and he gets such good news that he writes verse 9, and he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? So Paul, Paul is at a loss for words, and for Paul, that's a big deal. Uh, Paul, Paul's a man of words, and, and he, he preaches a lot. He writes a lot, but he feels like anything that he says is inexpressible. His joy is just too strong. He is so happy that he's seen this church that he spent just a few weeks that is still going in the faith, that still appreciates the work that he's done, still loves him, and loves Jesus Christ above all. As I read this verse of thanksgiving, I can't help but relate to Paul. I can't help but relate to Paul as a pastor. And, and you're just, just, just looking at his joy, his thankfulness. As a pastor, I find it a great joy to look at people I've ministered to over the last year and a half and reflect back on Crosspoint since we've started. And some of you have come here very frequently since we, since we started. And I just want to say each of you all are an encouragement to me, church. I consider it a privilege to get to stand up here and share the gospel with you and preach the word of God. I consider it a joy to be able to walk through trials and, and difficult circumstances with you as well. And I pray that, that you feel comfortable at this church. What I'm most excited about, what I'm most thankful for, though, in this church, to be honest, 
is that you receive the word of God with joy and gladness. That you receive it not in defensiveness. We, we go verse by verse, book by book, and so we get some very difficult scriptures. We get some very difficult sermons. And frankly, I would have been kicked out of many pulpits and churches, even in our own area, for preaching some of the sermons that I've preached here because they're so countercultural. But I praise God that, that I get encouragement after I preach some of the sermons. I, I leave, leave the pulpit thinking, oh man, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to go over, but God, I need, I need to be faithful. My, my job is not to please man. My job is to please God. And so I go and I sit down over there and I have people that come over and say, wow, that was a great sermon. And I'm just sitting there like, wow. Thank you, Lord. That's your Holy Spirit. And that, that is such a joy to me. And so I can so relate to Paul, who is so excited here, so joyful seeing their faithfulness to the Word of God. And I thank you that you are a church that is hungering and thirsting after the Word of God because it is His Word, not ours. I thank you that, and I'm thankful that we can continue to grow, our faith can continue to grow by persistent interaction of the body of Christ through teachers, preachers, fellow church members doing life together. Number two, we see that Christ strengthens your faith through persistent intercession as well. Persistent intercession. In verse 10, he says, As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So intercession means praying on behalf of another. It's entreating God on behalf of another. And he continues to pray for this church, he says, both day and night, meaning continually. And he'll go on, actually in the same book in chapter 5, 17, he says to pray without ceasing or pray continually. And he's doing just that in regards to them. And he lets them know that he's not just praying often, but he's praying most earnestly. And this word, actually, the Greek word has a hyper in front of it, saying that it is above and beyond what would be even earnest. Like he is praying very, very hard for them, beyond all measure or super abundantly. My friends, we can take some notes from Paul in our prayer life here. Um, if we look at Paul, he actually uses this, uh, this term, inter- like it, we're talking about intercessory prayer. He uses this term for intercessory prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And this Greek word, actually, this Greek noun is only here and in chapter 4, verse 5. Only two places in Scripture uh, that the actual term intercession is there. Now, the verb form is, is multiple times in Scripture. But yet we see intercessory prayer exemplified throughout Scripture in many different places. We see people go on behalf of others to God, to entreat God. And there is no probably better example, actually there is no better example of intercessory prayer than John chapter 17. Jesus interceding on behalf of his disciples and believers everywhere. And frankly, he intercedes for us today. How amazing is that? If you haven't read John 17 recently, open up your Bibles this week and read John 17 and see Jesus himself, the Son of God, God made flesh, praying for you and for me today. It just gives me chills to think about Jesus thinking of us today, knowing before you were formed, I knew you, we see in Scripture, right? And so how amazing is that that Jesus is praying for us, particularly even in John 17. How amazing is that? And we need to follow Jesus' example in the way we intercede for one another. And he hopes to be able to visit them again soon because he wants to help, uh, help them to grow and to fill in the gaps of their theology. Obviously, we know uh, that he says to supply what is lacking in their faith. And that word means really to supply, like to complete uh, so they have an incomplete understanding of God because he wasn't there long enough. But what they know, they have grasped 
hold of, and the Holy Spirit has worked through, but there, there's some knowledge deficiencies there. He wasn't there very long, and so Timothy's going to them. He went to them, and he's helped to supply that some, and they know, hey, there still needs to be some more time, and so they're praying that God would bring them back. And we're going to see later in this letter, uh, even, even in, the, in the following chapter, uh, into chapter 4 and even verse 5, we're going to see one of those was eschatology, the study of end times. There were some wonky beliefs there, and he even goes into it in Second Thessalonians 2. It must have been a difficult thing for the church that we'll go into later. But before we get to that point, we're going to see this intercessory prayer that Paul lifts up on behalf of of this church in Thessalonica. That the next three verses in 11 and 13, through, thir- through 13, we're going to see that. And we're going to, this, this marks a transition of this book. So, so far we've had a lot of, of comfort, uh, we've had a lot of personal addressing, thanksgiving, and we're going to go after this intercessory prayer, we're going to give, we're going to be given a lot more teaching, admonition, and charges to act. So this is going to mark a big transition for us as we study. But let's go ahead and read this prayer that he, that he, ca- uh, he uh, gives up to the Lord, offers up to the Lord. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he might est- may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. As we study these last three verses, uh, we see four distinct things Paul prays for this growing church. And the first is, number one, leadership and teaching. He started uh, by asking that God would direct him and his companions back to Thessalonica. He knows that they need to, be, they need to have their knowledge completed. Uh, they still have some gaps in their theology. And so he, he prays hard that God will take them back to help them to grow in righteous living and an understanding, a more complete understanding of God's word. And the first pl- way that he wants them to live righteously is that they be increasing in faith, in verse 12. He, he wanted to be able to supply what was lacking and complete what was incomplete. He wanted them to increase in their knowledge of God so that they could grow in the knowledge of God's word and that their faith would deepen. Next, he wanted to see them uh, abounding in love, verse 12, abounding in love. And the word abounding here is, again, that kind of above and beyond um, if we look, he actually uses the same idea here in Romans 12.10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. My friends, we're not to be competitive when it comes to ministry outcomes and ministry measures or, or blessings or, or praise, but we're to compete in loving and honoring one another. How great would churches across America be if that was our competition? How can we exalt our neighbor over ourselves? How can we lift up our other people? How can we encourage other people instead of being so self-focused and just wanting other people to say how great we are? What if we spent our lives, our, all of the energy we had to encourage others and to lift others up? That's a competition that God would definitely encourage and definitely does encourage. He wants to see them abounding in love for one another. But note here, he doesn't just stop with one another. He actually says, and for all at that point. And th- this is kind of a unique area here because Paul, Paul oftentimes and, and John oftentimes uses brothers where we're talking about believers, brothers and sisters. We see that a lot. Well, here, t- to love for all. And, and what he's talking about, what he's trying to press in on this for all is, hey, you know what? We came to you. And as we've talked about, most of these people were pagans that had at least 25 gods and goddesses. These people were not good people by, by even the Israelite standards. Like it would not, would not have been considered good people. 
they, they had horrible practices, and yet they came and they loved on them. And they loved them enough to share the gospel with them and, and tell them about the word of God. And so he calls them to, to love their enemies as well, right? Jesus Christ told us, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we know that this early church is having afflictions like Paul has. Because here's the thing, you go from worshiping 25 gods and goddesses and having a whole economic system that is based on paganism, and all of a sudden now you have one true God, Yahweh, you're, you're out. You're out of a lot, a lot of the things like temple worship, different things. A lot of their economy was built around these pagan gods and goddesses. That's why Paul kept getting thrown out of town after town because the silversmiths would be like, hey, if you all quit worshiping Artemis or you quit worshiping whatever god this is, then I lose my job, and so I'm going to get people mad at you to get you out of here. It really wasn't even the message as much as it was money. And, and we know that th- that, is, that is how Satan works. He knows where to press in, where our issues are as people. And we are called to do the same, my friends. It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to love people who are similar to you. But it is really hard to love people who are hostile to you. It's really hard to love those who are unlovable. But Paul and his companions, they stepped into that. They, 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 they shared the gospel with those who were unlovable. And, and because of that, some came to the knowledge of Christ. But you know what? Some threw them out of town. You know, it wasn't a great experience for them. And they hated them so much that they chased him to Berea and threw him out of the next town, too, to keep him going. I mean, so, so we know that sharing the gospel, it may have some negative consequences. But yeah, we need to know that God shows no partiality, and we aren't either. We're to share the gospel to all. Even sometimes the worst of sinners, as Paul referred himself to, right? Finally, he calls them to be living blameless and holy lives blameless and holy lives. Let's read verse 13 again. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father. This is quite a charge. They were to be blameless, which means above reproach and above any accusation. They were to be holy to the Lord, and we are to be holy unto the Lord. This term refers to one who is consecrated and sanctified as God's special possession. We look back at Israel, and and they had special anointed vessels. They were holy vessels that were only to be used for the Lord's service. That's us. And we see Paul actually teach this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. It was a big price, my friends. It was Christ's blood. He shed it on the cross for us. We were bought with that. So glorify God in your body. We are not on earth, on earth for our own pleasures and our own wants and our own desires. We are his special possessions. We are his holy instrument in a lost and dying world. And you can almost hear Paul say, this, say as he goes through this in 1 Corinthians 6, so act like it. He's looking at this church that is, that is trying to marry paganism along and, and trying to put it in, trying to sandwich it in to the gospel and say, well, we can still do all these bad things. We can still be sexually immoral. We can still do all these really bad things, but we can, we can just add Jesus on top of it. Contextualization. We're just, just going to, uh, syncretism is actually the, the term there where you, where you put two religions together. We're going to try to just make our own religion now. So many people today, even in our culture, do this. And they come to church and they sit here and they, Amen. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. And then Monday comes, and they don't think another thing of Jesus until the next Sunday. And they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. I pray that we're not like the hypocrites that do that. I pray that we, don't, that we give God a lot more than a second thought throughout the week, that we walk with him day by day, minute by minute, 
and hour by hour. I pray that each of us understands the high calling that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. We are set apart for, to do good works that he's prepared for us. Yes, we're going to blow it. We're going to sin. And we're going to have to repent time and time again. But he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us. He's merciful, and he will pick us back up, and he'll help us to walk in his power, not our own, but his power, to do what he wants us to do. He ends, the, he ends his prayer here with the following words in verse 13. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I find it really interesting that Paul ends with an eschatological turn, uh, tone here, uh, meaning end times. As we just mentioned, he desires this young church to be holy and blameless. And, and why is, is his desire so strong that this church is walking in the truth of the gospel? Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And my friends, Jesus' return is imminent. It will happen. And it is sooner today than it was yesterday. I don't have a timeline that can tell you. It could be now. I remember Pastor Kenny at Good Shepherd always hoped that one day he would do that and Jesus would come. Uh, we're, we're 0 for 1 here at Crosspoint now. Um, but, you know, we never know. We never know how it's going to go. Um, but we, we know we're going to talk more about end times with the day of the Lord and Jesus' second coming in the, in the coming weeks. But I pray that we know that there will, it will be a joyous time for us who are in Christ. We need not fear. We walk with the Lord. We walk step by step. We're, we're making him our priority, our number one. But it will be a time of terror and peril for those who are not in who are not his. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you're here today and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I entreat you, I practically beg you to consider what great peril will befall you if that is you when Jesus comes back or when Jesus takes you, takes your life and you go to meet him. I pray that you don't just come to him out of fear. Yes, there is a, a real lake of fire called hell that you will suffer for all eternity if you are not in Christ. But, but I pray that that not be the main reason why you get saved, why you give your life to Christ. I pray, yeah, that's part of it. That is part of it. But the, his kindness and his mercy lead you to repentance because he took the punishment that you deserved on the cross. By his wounds, you were healed. He took nails through his wrists and through his legs, probably ankles. He took a crown of thorns. He suffered and bled and died. But yet he rose three days later. But he took your punishment on that, on that cross. We deserve death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through who? Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ plus Allah, Jesus Christ plus humanism, myself, Jesus Christ plus Ah, it could be everybody, your, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, postmodernism, relative, ah, my faith is in him, but your faith may be somewhere else, then you are not in Christ. That is not true salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Your faith must be on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He is not just the relative truth. He is the absolute truth. Anything that disagrees with that, anything that stands in, in, a, in opposition to that is a lie from the pit of hell and you need to reject it. Because if you do not reject that, if you take Christ plus the world, that's not true salvation. That is not being holy and blameless and set apart. That is not truly being Christ. And I pray that if you haven't done this, that you don't know to take another moment without doing it, that you don't give your life to Christ. It is the most important decision you will ever make. And the Bible teaches us that, that we don't choose God. Romans 3, we, we can't. 
we're, we're so evil that we can't choose God. But what it does teach us is that God draws us to himself. And if that's you today and you feel God drawing you, not to be all supernatural, but God does. His Holy Spirit is here because guess what? Everyone who is believers, the Holy Spirit isn't dwelling us right now. And that God is everywhere also we see in Scripture, even apart from that. If he is drawing you and you're like, man, you know, I really haven't, really haven't done that, please respond. I'd love to talk with you after the service about what it really means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart. You can say no. As he draws you, you can reject that drawing. And guess what? He doesn't promise he's going to draw you tomorrow. He says he's going to draw all men to himself. But he doesn't say he's going to draw all men at all times to himself. And we see people who harden their hearts to them. They grow up in church. They hear the gospel over and over again, over again. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know. I know up here. I'm good. I'm, I got my fire insurance. Well, if that's you, you're not saved. God is not your fire insurance. He is your Savior. He loves you. He died on the cross for you. He wants a relationship with you. He is not your fire insurance. He is your God, your Lord, your Master. And if you don't respond to him in that type of a way that I am bought with a price, I am owned by God, and I want to be because I love him and I've given my life to him and I want everything that I do to glorify him. I don't want to make much of myself. Yes, my flesh is sinful and it's going to continue to be sinful. I get that. But your spirit should groan inside of you when you do what's wrong. As Paul says, he hates what he does and what he does want to do, he doesn't. But he hates it. His, his spirit longs to be with the Lord, loves Jesus, and even says to live as, or like, you know, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain as we just went through Philippians last year. Is that how you live? Or is it to live as me? To live as to buy what I want? To, to live as to do what I want? Well, that's not salvation, my friends. That is not salvation. To live is Christ. Do you hunger and thirst for his word, for time with him in prayer? And I think in the American culture, we've made salvation so easy that we've sent people to hell. Because what we've said is, you can believe in Jesus and be saved, and that is not truth. It is not truth. And people will look at me and be like, you're a heretic. You just said that you can't be saved by believing in Jesus Christ. No, you, that is necessary. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. But you must give your life to him. You must pick up your cross and carry it and go with him. He must be the Lord of your life. Because my friend, Satan believes in Jesus Christ. Satan not only believes, he watched him hang on a cross. He watched him be crucified and nailed to it. He watched him raise from the dead and steal the keys of death. What makes you different than Satan if you believe in Jesus Christ, just like someone believes in anything? My friends, the difference between Satan and a believer is that belief has action, that, that there is the Holy Spirit indwells them. You are born again, as John chapter 3 says, and you are walking with Christ. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's not just by a head nod. It is giving your entire life to Christ and letting him work in you. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Works do not save you, but a true faith does work. And so if, if you have, quote-unquote, been saved, but you look back at your life and there's not been any change in you, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed you a bit. You look just the same as that day that you gave God the head nod, you went forward, you had a prayer, whatever it was, you look just the same today. My friends, you're not saved. I know that sounds really judgmental, but the Bible says that you will grow. No one who has been born again makes a practice of sinning. That means you don't keep going in it. You don't go into unrepentant sin. Yes, you sin daily, but you repent. True believers repent and turn from it. And I pray that you respond to this free gift of grace. And I'd love to talk to you. If you're having doubts, you're like, you know what? I'm not so sure. 
I'd love to talk to you about what it really means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are believers, persist in the faith. Intercede on behalf of those around you. Because, you know, we got hard lives. And, and yes, American culture, the persecution here is not as bad as it is in China and Islamic countries and communist countries. But it's still hard here. It's still a place where people don't always want to hear about Jesus Christ. When people see something like that and they, they, they shun you because they have a bra- you have a bracelet or a cross on or something like that. So intercede for your brothers and sisters. We also live in a world full of temptation and sin that makes it harder and harder to live a blameless and holy life. Pray for your brothers and sisters. And intercede for those around you who are not saved. Intercede for those around you who are destined to hell right now and then need God to draw them to him and to respond to the gospel. Pray for God to draw more and more people. Pray for revival. Pray that we see this community come to Christ and pray for his grace and mercy for our area. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for saving my soul. I did not deserve it. None of us do. But God, I thank you that you have saved me. I pray that everyone here can say confidently that you are their rock, their redeemer, their savior, that they know without a shadow of a doubt that they've put their faith and trust in you and you alone. And God, I know that we have ups and downs in our spiritual walk. I know that we have difficult times. But God, may, may you fill us with your spirit in a mighty way. Help us to walk in the spirit, not according to the flesh to gratify its desires, but may we walk to gratify you and to please you and not others or ourselves. Lord, help us go throughout this week and share the gospel with those around us. Help us to love our enemies, love those who are even hostile to us, and love them enough to share the gospel, the good news of deliverance through Jesus Christ. Open up our eyes to see the times where you've opened up doors for us to do that. May we be a church that always responds well to your word. We pray against any division that that may come from the enemy in our own lives and our families. God, help us to, to, to be strong for you, Lord. Help us to intercede on behalf of one another as well. Help us in our prayer lives to grow in our, in our talk with you, our, our conversations with you, Lord. You desire us to walk in a continual state of prayer. God, help us to do that and to always be cognizant and aware of your presence. Lord, we thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for this time together this morning. And when we go throughout this week rejuvenated and ready to do what your will is. We love you, Lord. Amen.